Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Galatians chapter 3 is where we are. We're in the middle of a series entitled The Grace Driven Life. Between the two of us, my wife, this will, this will surprise no one, is smarter than me. And one of the ways I know that is she's more well-read than me. Um, and the reason I know she's more well-read than me is because she's a more well-rounded reader. My, my subject matter tends to be a little bit more focused. She and I both read history. We both read theology. We both read sociology, anthropology, philosophy. We both read popular culture. But where she starts to inch ahead of me is when it comes to fiction. I've never been a fan of fiction outside of Tom Clancy novels. And truthfully, if you know Tom Clancy, I think the movies are better than the book. And so I usually just go to wait for it to, to come out into the theaters. But a friend of mine many years ago got me to switch. He helped me to kind of cross over that bridge just temporarily when he introduced me to something called alternative history. It's called mixed genre literature. You take a time period in history and you inject fiction into that history, and he lended me a book that I just could not put down, a book written by a guy named Harry Turtledove called Guns of the South. Now, you have to understand, I grew up in the state that started the Civil War, all right? So this is going to be of some interest to me, but the way this, the way this story plays out, it opens up, the plot does, just, just immediately after the Battle of Gettysburg, in the middle of the Civil War, General Lee is very tired. He's still reeling from just an overwhelming defeat in that battle at the hands of the Union Army. He's met by men wearing strange-looking clothes, speaking in strange accents that he doesn't quite, he has to really listen hard to even understand what they're saying in English. The plot later would reveal these men to be from the 20th century in pre-apartheid South Africa. And they've come back in time to offer the general what they believe is the perfect gift. Hundreds of Chinese manufactured AK-47s. Some of you are like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. Well, it got me to read fiction, okay? The rest of the story, of course, follows that alternative history. Obviously, with that kind of superior firepower there's going to be a Confederate victory. Then there are going to be two, not one, sovereign nations that are going to emerge out of that. But then Turtle Dove's going to paint the underbelly of that as well, long-term instability in both the North and the South, the continual perpetuation of the slave trade. The attraction of alternative history is it narrates the what-if questions. And that's, that's one of the things that, that attracted me to it anyway. Alternative history can be a lot of fun. But there's another kind of history that looks like alternative history, but it's a lot more subversive and a lot more dangerous. Because not only does it weave fiction into what actually happened, it takes the extra step of trying to convince us that the fictional alternative is actually what happened. A good name for this would be revisionist history. You've probably encountered this. 
Uh, it's an election year, so just look out. You're going to see this in spades on both the right and the left. Everybody's going to spend history to their own advantage. We, we see that all the time. Revisionist history fans the flame of the ignorance of the populace about the real history in order to forward an agenda. And when it starts to inform policy or cultural practice, it actually becomes dangerous to civilization. Now, what's true for civil society is also true for the body of Christ. It was true for the church at Galatia because that is exactly what is happening. We've already seen a, a number of of issues that Paul has confronted in this letter to Galatia. But as we get into Galatians 3, we see Paul confronting some revisionist history. These Judaizers have come into the churches in this region and convinced these new converts, you have to be circumcised, you have to observe the dietary restrictions, you have to do this, this, and this in order to be saved. And a number of these people are Jewish, but probably not as deeply rooted in their own heritage as they, they're, they're counterparts in Jerusalem might have been. You've got others from a completely Gentile background who have no knowledge of the Jewish roots of their faith. The Judaizers decide to take advantage of this ignorance and leverage it for their own agenda. What's the lesson here? Well, for one thing, it matters who your history teacher is, doesn't it? It really does. You got to watch that very, very carefully. And so this is the part of the argument that we find in Galatians 3 and what we see in these next verses is Paul making historical corrections. He's going to say to the Galatians, listen, the Judaizers are right when they tell you there is a long, rich tradition that goes back to Abraham. The Judaizers are correct when they say that your faith in Jesus didn't occur in a vacuum. It, in fact, emerges out of Judaism. But everything else they're telling you is revisionist history that will damn your soul. And this is why. Because the connection between that history and your faith is not the law of Moses. The connection is faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of good news in that statement alone that we're going to unpack over the next few moments in answering this question. What does it take to be part of that long and rich tradition? Well, you got to do three things. Number one, you have to pass through the common door. See, there is a commonality between Abraham and everyone who came after Abraham, all the way up to you and me. And Paul describes that beginning in verse 6. He says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So there's your connection. It's faith. Now, it's, it's hard for us, again, in our place in history, and I've mentioned this before in this series, to understand why this debate was so fierce and so serious in the first century. Why would you fight about something that, from our standpoint, is as dumb as whether or not you need to be circumcised in order to be saved? But that question is answered by observing the debate here over one person, Abraham. Why is circumcision important? Because it can be traced back to Abraham, the one who received the promise first in Genesis 12 and then later repeated in Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and then through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And then in, in chapter 17 of Genesis, we see the sign of that agreement between God and Abraham was circumcision. 
And so the Judaizers are coming in with that history and saying, well, if it was good enough for Abraham, you ever heard that song, Give Me That Old Time Religion? I'm not going to sing it today because I would sound like a chain-smoking sister of Marge Simpson with this voice. <laughs> Give me that old-time religion. You, you, it was good for Paul and Silas. It was good for all the prophets. Maybe just, just have that song. Now, is it stuck in your head? It, you're welcome. There you go. This is what he's saying. It was good enough for Abraham. Not only that, it was good for every major figure in all of Hebrew history which means it was good enough for Moses, it was good enough for the prophets, and then comes the mic drop moment, it was good enough for Jesus. And Paul counters this. This is what he's pointing at and saying, this is revisionist history that will damn you and it will enslave you. So not only are you going to be damned at the end of the age, but between this point and that one, you will live a perpetually enslaved life. Who your history teacher is matters. And so Paul corrects that revisionist history in these verses by saying three things. Number one, Abraham came by faith. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Put a period at the end of that sentence. No need to add circumcision or anything else that comes afterward. He's saying to the Galatians, if you want the blessing of Abraham, you've got to become part of the family of Abraham. And what grants you entrance into that family is not removing a piece of skin. It is faith. Because it is, verse 7 says, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not only that, but secondly, Paul goes on to say, the scriptures that speak about Abraham doesn't prescribe circumcision, but faith. Verse 8 again in the scripture. For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying in you, all the nations shall be blessed. So the, the flow of that blessing isn't dependent upon circumcision. It's dependent upon faith. So if you want Abraham's blessing, you have to be part of Abraham's family. And Paul makes a bold declaration here. The family of Abraham not only is not now, it has never in history been determined by genetics or ethnicity. The door into this family, and therefore the door into divine blessing that can not only bless you, but pass through you and make its way to the whole world through you, just as it did through Abraham, that door is opened with faith. Now, what is faith? I like Tony Evans' definition. Tony says, faith is acting like it is so, even when it is not so, so that it might be so, simply because God said so. I like that. Your connection to God, my connection, thankfully, is, I, don't, I don't know, I, I haven't done the whole ancestry, the, the genetic study, I, I don't even know. I, I do know this. I know that in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, about 20 years ago, there was a little shop in the mall there, it's not there anymore, and they would trace your family's lineage. My mother's side were Owens's. Well, that's very obviously British. My father's side, of course, is Rainey. And they said, well, that could either be British or it could be Scottish. And so as we talked, he said, well, wait a minute. Didn't you, uh, didn't you say you had Native American? I said, yeah, my, my father's one-quarter Cherokee Indian. 
He said, where'd that come from? I said, my paternal great-great-grandmother. Yeah? I said, yeah, she was a, she was a full-blooded Cherokee Indian. And he goes, oh, well, then it's Scottish. <laughs> How can you tell me that? He said, the British would have never married outside their ethnicity. But the Scottish, they really didn't care. <laughs> so, so I'm a mutt. That's what I am. You check, right? And I do that every time. You, any, any kind of form where you got to, you know, check your ethnicity, white, black, you know, Filipino, whatever. Yeah, you know, all those different categories now. I just, I just laugh and I go, where's mutt? Because I, I don't see that. That's what I am. Here's the great news for people like me, and I suspect for most of you. Your connection to God, contrary to what the Judaizers were trying to convince the people at Galatia of, your connection to God is not dependent on 23 and me. It's not. It doesn't rest on religious works or practice when you can admit what is so about your own life, that your sins have separated you from your God and then believe that through the seed of Abraham, that is Jesus, God can change that reality. When you, just like your father and my father, Abraham, he's my father too, by faith. Why? Because we simply believe God the same way he simply believed God. We rely completely on him. We take God at his word. At that moment, you have come into that same family in which there is no Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female. That's the good news of the gospel. You know, one of the greatest examples of this is in, in Hebrews chapter 11. We read a, a great genealogy of faith. There, people that aren't necessarily related to each other, but they're connected through this common thread of faith. Theologians call it the hall of faith. And you see many of the, the usual suspects there, all the giants of the faith that you would expect, Abel, Abraham, Moses. I don't know if you've ever read that passage and noticed that right alongside all of those is a woman named Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. But she was a prostitute that if you read the story in the early parts of Joshua, actually exhibited greater faith in the God of Israel than an entire generation of Israelites had displayed in their God for 40 solid years. And because of that faith, this woman was not only spared physically from the destruction of Jericho, she was saved spiritually. She enters into this hall of faith, and she, a prostitute, eventually becomes the great-grandmother of someone you may know, King David. Let me tell you something. This is what the gospel will do. The common door into this long, rich tradition involves truly believing that your past does not define you. Your genetics do not define you. You, you don't know what I've done, Pastor. It doesn't matter what you've done. That's the greatest news of all. Pass through the common door. Simply do what Abraham did. Believe what God says. He is capable of doing in your life and have him reckon that to you as righteousness. Pass through the common door. Number two, if you're going to do this, you've got to avoid the common mistake. Paul continues in verse 10. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them 
shall live by them. So you see this great contrast here. You're either going to do this by faith or you're going to do this by trying to be obedient to the law. Early in my seminary days, I shared a formations class with an older gentleman. He was already in his 60s, called to ministry late in life after a long and rather distinguished career as a cardiac surgeon. And I don't remember what led to this particular uh, subject matter being raised, but we were in, we were in the, the dining hall just having a conversation. And he brought up his former, former profession, and he started talking about the various cases that he used to have to deal with and the patients that he would see. And he said something to us that I thought, man, that's, that's something worth remembering. He said, it really doesn't matter how strong your heart is, and it really doesn't matter how otherwise healthy the rest of your body might be. If you have an arterial blockage and it doesn't get repaired, you are going to die. And he said, the way we typically know to put somebody on a treadmill and hook them up to all kinds of stuff to measure to see if there might be something is we look at some external symptoms. Fatigue, irritability, emotional instability can come out of all these kinds of things. Now, we've been reminded in this passage that God gave Abraham a promise of blessing that would flow through him and out into the entire world. The Galatians have been told that the common denominator of this promise is faith in the same God in whom Abraham placed his faith. And now Paul's contrasting that promise with the enslaving demands of the Judaizers. And he says this teaching, it's not just revisionist history. It's a spiritual blockage. Well, how do you diagnose that? Well, Paul, Paul says there's three ways you can diagnose this. And as long as you buy into what they're teaching you, there's going to be a blocked flow of the blessing of God in your life. So you may wonder, how, how do I know whether I'm living like that, Pastor? Well, Paul gives us, just like that cardiac, former cardiac surgeon gave me, the symptoms that can sometimes indicate an arterial blockage. Paul says here are the symptoms of a spiritual blockage. Number one, your life course is the course of a curse. That's what he says. He says, you have people in your midst convincing you that the path to freedom to salvation is the law. Let me remind you what the scriptures they are appealing to you actually say about the law. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 27, 26. He says, this is the thing. If what they are telling you is true, then the way you get salvation is you have to obey and you have to keep obeying. And you have to never stop obeying, and you have to never fail to obey. The result of that kind of life is similar to somebody trying to run a marathon with arterial blockage, fatigue, irritability with others. You ever met a legalist like a bona fide, somebody who talked about believing in Jesus, but you ask them about their faith, and it's all about what they do and how much they serve and how much money they give and how much work they do and how much they sacrifice or, or all the things that they abstain from or the movies they won't watch that you are, and so they're just a little bit holier than you or they, the alcohol that they stay away from, even though you may have a little something with your steak, and so that makes them more holy than you. You ever met anybody like that? I'm going to tell you something. I, I've... I've had people get offended at what I've said. I know that's hard to believe. <laughs> I, I've, had, I've had people living in, a, in, a, in an immoral lifestyle. They, they get angry with me sometimes. There are people that 
that are participating in sins that have become idols to them, and it gets confronted. Most of the time, I don't even know I've confronted it, but it, but it gets done. But I'm a, the, the, the most vitriolic opposition I have ever gotten in 28 years of ministry does not come from outside the church. It comes from inside people who are good and upright and they tuck their shirt in and they pay their taxes and they're punctual and they work really hard and somewhere along the way they have convinced themselves that that earns them just a little more favor with God than it earns you. And I'm going to tell you something about those people. They are mean as hell. They are. And you're laughing because you know it's the truth. That's, that's where you, that, what is that? That's irritability. Irritability. And it's because they're living under a curse that they voluntarily put. This is the essence of what it feels like to live under a curse. Here's the second symptom. You're going to die under that curse. Your life isn't just a curse. The end of your life is judgment. This brings us back to verse 11. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This is the central issue. All of humanity has sinned against God, and the unalterable, non-negotiable, immovable penalty is death. Separation from his love, his mercy, his grace, and everybody in this room, and the guy preaching, and everybody in this world is guilty. And only Innocent people enter into the presence of the most holy God. The only answer is justification. From a legal standpoint, that means you and I have to be declared righteous. We have to live our lives by some other way but other than the curse of the law. You want to live under the curse of the law, it's like, it's like trying to work off a crime. If you robbed a bank and got away with it for a little while, and let's say it was a heist. I mean, it wasn't just some little bank and... Martinsburg, you went to D.C. and you hit a big thing. And you walked away maybe with hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars. And then later on, they caught up with you because I got news for you. When you rob a bank, they will. I don't know what it is. I mean, you can murder somebody, get away with it. You rob a bank, you're going to get caught. It's going to happen. And you stand before the judge and you say, Judge, I'm I'm basically a good person. I didn't, I didn't wound or murder anybody during that heist. Furthermore, I, I've provided a home for my wife and my children. I'm a good provider. I was employee of the month last month. I, I've given tens of thousands of dollars to the church. I've, and you could just go on and on and on. And when you get done, you know what the judge is going to do if he's a good judge? He's just going to look back at you and say, you robbed a bank. You, you, that's what you're in here for. All that good stuff doesn't do squat. It don't mean squat. You robbed a bank. Moreover, because you robbed a bank, all that provision you're talking about for your family and even from your church came from sources that did not belong to you. Even the good things you do are tainted. That's where you stand before God if you're not justified by faith. 
And it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter the, the size of the checks you write. None of that makes one whit of difference. Work all you want. You will live under a curse and you will die to face judgment. And the whole reason for that is this third symptom. Paul says, your life is about doing rather than trusting. Look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. You, you, these are separate. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Law and faith are like oil and water. And the reason is because a relationship cannot, at one and the same time, be both unconditional and transactional. All right. Our home, we have one kid off at of college. We have two still at home. Our house includes a division of labor. All right. Anybody in here, your kids are still at home and there's, there's responsibilities, right? Somebody in our house has to do the dishes. Somebody in our house has to do the laundry. Somebody in our house has to change the litter of those stupid cats. All right. there's, a, there's, a, there's a job to be done, and there's always somebody to do it. So if it didn't get done, we know who was supposed to do it. And that person in the rainy household is lovingly confronted because everybody has an assignment. And occasionally when that person is confronted, the rainy household experiences what some of you in the working world may call a labor dispute. <laughs> you ever have one of those? Confront your kid because they didn't get something done. All of a sudden you feel like your kid's been talking to a union rep. <laughs> Shared labor is part of what it means to be in my family. I'm sure that's, that's true for you guys too. But be, but be very careful, and we have to be careful about this too as a family. None of that defines what it means to be in the family. You get the difference? All right. It, it, grace, again, is not about living however you want. It's not about being unaccountable. It's not about being able to just sin to your heart's content. But, but it's not my performance that makes me a part of my family. Imagine if my children thought that the completion of their chores was a requirement for their father's love. What if they thought that? What if they worked as though a missed garbage pickup meant no supper for an entire week. And parents, I know, it's tempting. I, I get it. Mom and dad would never do that because if we did that or if we gave them the impression that somehow our love is contingent on that happening, you know how my kids would live? They would live in fear all the time. Some of you may be living like that right now because that's your relationship with God. How am I going to get done? How am I going to make up for what I've done? How am I going to do enough? Listen, your God is not a harsh taskmaster. He is a loving father. You don't need to allow your performance anxiety to block the blessing he wants to come into your life. Don't, you need to avoid this common mistake of thinking, I've, I've got to add works to what he has already done. And the way you do that is by answering the common call. Paul continues, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Here's what the law does, leaves you out in the cold. 
Imagine being an orphaned child or being homeless or being someone who's just completely vulnerable. Walking up to a really fine restaurant with ceiling to floor glass walls all the way around it. Pressing your nose up against the glass and seeing a buffet table with enough food to feed an army. People dressed in their finest enjoying their dinner. That glass that's separating you from the thing you need, that's the law. That's what it does. It doesn't provide anything for you. Obedience to it doesn't provide anything. Here's what it does. It reveals to you what you can never have. And if that's all you got, that's all you'll ever be able to do. Listen to what James tells us about the law. If you keep the whole law, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So your hope cannot be in that. Neither can mine. Our hope is in one man who came into history and fulfilled that law completely, as Paul describes here, who then became a curse for us because the penalty for sin is death. Somebody has to die for what you did. Somebody has to die for who you are. Someone has. Someone has. Listen, God, God hates sin. That's why, on the one hand, this isn't about just a blessing to live however you want. This is about setting you free from those sinful proclivities because God hates sin. His wrath is infinite against all sin. And prior to Jesus, every one of us is stamped and defined by sin. And nothing short of absolute perfection enters the presence of God. And so what rests on us apart from Jesus is the law and all of its demands that I can't meet. A curse that's been rightly placed upon me that I deserve, that I cannot bear, and a cost to get all of this off of me that I cannot pay. You have to hear the good news before you recognize, the bad news before you recognize how wonderful the good news is. Some of you walk in fear. Some of you do rather than trust. Some of you live in bondage because this is what you're relying on. No wonder you feel the way you do. No wonder you feel the weight that you do. The foundation of this letter, in fact, the foundation of the gospel itself, the whole message this church was created to share with the world is that Jesus came into the world and he bore that wrath. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he performed a righteousness for us which was not earned. It is given to you by the same faith that was exercised by Abraham. This is the common call into that long, rich historical tradition of faith that can redeem. I got good news for you this morning. Jesus provides all the righteousness you need to be acceptable to God. Jesus bears all of the curse that needs to be born for you to pay your debt to God. And the result of your simple act of faith is that paradise is open to you and you can know him and grow in him and overcome whatever sins have held you back through him. You can live a life of enjoyment in him knowing that he is no longer against you. That is the power of grace, activated not through works of the law, but through faith. And you can be ready, not just in this life, but the next one. And listen to me very carefully. 
This body of believers came together in an incredible way these last two days to say goodbye to two members of this covenant family. I did a funeral on Friday. I did another one yesterday afternoon. That's, that's kind of irregular for us to have them come in a quick succession like that. But every single time I do one of those, I am reminded that it is only a matter of very short time. Yeah, you may be in your 20s and thinking you're invincible. I did too. That's because I wasn't very bright in my 20s. Maybe you'll be smarter than me and realize not only that you're not invincible, but you, just like me, just like someone 40 years my senior sitting somewhere else in here, in the same room as you, is one heartbeat, one breath from meeting God. This existence that you've got that you think is so significant, it is one little two-second slice. It's going to come to a very abrupt end one day, and then it's either going to be with him or not for all of eternity. The good news is that you can be ready through faith. You can be made to know him to be part of this long, rich tradition, no matter who you are or where you come from. So you can have the assurance of where you're going when this little two-second experience is over. And for the next two seconds, you can have freedom, liberty, joy, peace, eternity, just like Abraham, by faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for allowing your servant Paul to set the record straight by setting the history straight. Lord, we thank you that it is not dependent on our ethnicity, our last name, how much money is in our wallet, how much money we take out of our wallet to give to a church. It, it, none of that makes one whit of difference. But Father, it is simply through faith that we come into relationship with you. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who's been laboring for any length of time, under the weight of the law, under some kind of performance expectation. Father, they would learn, number one, there's, there's just no way they could ever meet your demands. And secondly, that simply by faith, they can get your unconditional love and they can also be empowered to meet the very expectations that up until this point, they've repeatedly failed at meeting. And so, Lord, may they come to you today in faith. May they admit their sin. May they express their confidence that you paid the penalty for their sins on the cross, that you rose from the dead to guarantee them eternal life. And may you be glorified in our response to this glorious message. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, 
I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.